I want to start off by the, uh, this morning by telling you about the time that David Cohn almost killed me. An esteemed, oh, it's the truth, an esteemed former pastor of this very church almost killed me when I was about 12 years old. Now, I say killed, maybe a little strong word, uh, severely injured. Before he came on staff here, he was a pastor in Wichita, Kansas. And for several years, our family, and in fact, this church, would go on snow ski trips. And we would go, and David and Nancy, and sometimes a couple people from their church, would meet us wherever we were going skiing, and uh, they would spend the week with us. Now, I was a teenage boy, and David took me under his wing and skied with me the whole time, which is a very gracious, wonderful thing for an adult to do. Say, hey, I'll, I'll take this 12-year-old, and I learned how to ski better, and we had a lot of fun, and it was goofy, and I thought it was awesome, and I had a blast. But David, being the, uh, the, the, the man that David is, David came up with this idea. He said, here's what we need to do. At the end of every day, we need to take the last run up the mountain. And so we need to be like the very last ones down where, where all the people that we're with are already down in the lodge. And there were two slopes that came right to the lodge. There was one, which was a green, really easy. And then there was one that was a black right to the side. But you could see both of them from the lodge. And so David wanted to put on a performance every single time. So David's idea was one of the days he said, here's what we're going to do. Let's get to the top of the green and then let's all take our shirts off. And we'll ski down the mountain with our shirts off and freezing cold, it's snowing, and everybody will laugh and they'll think it's awesome. Well, we did that, and everyone laughed and everyone thought it was awesome. I do remember my hands starting to get frostbite, and I was thinking that something was terribly wrong. But, I mean, this is David, after all. He wouldn't put me in harm's way. He was, you know, this is a wonderful thing. Well, then the next day, David was like, okay, this is, this is the, we gotta, uh, we, gotta, we gotta ramp it up. We got to do something better than yesterday. I mean, yesterday we got this reaction out of everybody, but today it's got to be it's got to be better. Remember, I'm 12 or 13 years old. This is a pastor. You know, this has been the family friend and, and brother forever. He he helped my my mom and dad, and my dad was on staff with him, and my mom was in a youth group. He wouldn't put me in harm's way. And David said, "Here's what we're going to do. We're going to get to the top of this black with all of these moguls in this steep incline. And as we're doing it, we're going to pretend we get in a fight, and I'm going to push you down." I thought, that sounds awesome. <laughs> that sounds like a great thing to do. So we kind of get started, and it's just supposed to be this light, playful thing where we look like we're arguing, and, and, and David just kind of, you know, lightly pushes me, and I just kind of fall over, and that's exactly what happened. But you got to remember, we're on a black. We're on a steep incline with giant moguls. And we're at the top of it. And so David and I start arguing and he kind of shoves me and I fall down and I don't stop falling. I just begin falling and bouncing off the moguls. And I'm just going down this steep incline and I'm just bouncing. And everyone I'm sure is down in that lodge and they're like, <laughs> look at me. I don't know if that's supposed to be happening right now. And I'm just falling. I lose my skis, my poles. I'm sure my gloves, my goggles, everything's just, you know, our pets' heads are falling off everywhere. And we're just, that's a joke. And we're going down the mountain. And I finally stop at the bottom. Of course, David, he's like, Neil, Neil, Neil. And he's coming down after me. I was perfectly fine. I didn't even get hurt. 
Now, if that would have happened today, <laughs> I would have died. Or bones, all the bones broken. All of them. But everything was fine. David skis down to me and he checks on me and he hasn't hit, you know, very kind to grab my skis and bring them down to me. He brings, he's like, no, Neil, are you okay? Are you okay? I'm like, I'm, I'm fine, Brother David. I'm fine. Every, everything's good. Uh, needless to say, we did not put on performances like that again after that event. That was the last time, David, I think we put on performances for people at the bottom. Um, yeah? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. This was all just part of the plan. David knew. He's like, one day this guy's going to uh, be a pastor. You know what? I'm going to give him a really good illustration one day. So he gave me a little bit harder push than he, th you know, than he was originally. He's like, this is for Jesus. Boom! It just shoves me down. In the long run, this is for Jesus. All joking and kidding aside, um, some of my favorite memories uh, of being a kid was skiing with David. Uh, and we would have other people go with us, but one of the things that David always did, and it, it was almost every single time we went to, up to the top of the mountain, we would take the, the long lift to the very top, and we'd get to the very top of that mountain, and David would just make us all stop. And he'd say, look at that. And he'd make us look at the beautiful mountaintops and scenery that we got to see from the top of the mountain. And David would, he would all, almost every time, we'd, you know, we'd get off the lift and we'd come around and before we'd go down, he'd just, he'd just make a stop. And he's like, look, just look at that. He said, our God made all of that. And I remember it being one of the first times in my life that I was really captivated by the splendor and wonder of creation. And I remember thinking, even as a 12 and 13 year old, I remember thinking, if God made that, how beautiful must He be? If He can create this effortlessly, how glorious must He be? How beautiful must He be? Have you ever noticed that all human beings are captivated and in awe of beauty? It's just a universal truth. All human beings are captivated and stand in awe of beauty. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. There is something in us as human beings where we are supposed to be glory seekers. We love it. We see it and we admire it. And that's not a bad thing. It's simply the way that we have been made. We crave glory. We are glory seekers. And it's because we've made, been made in the image of God. In his famous book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis is discussing glory and he's discussing beauty. And he says these words, We do not want to merely see beauty. God knows, even though that would be bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words to be united with the beauty we see. To pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it and in some way become part of it. 
There is something within us that knows it's not just good enough to look at the beauty. I want to be a part of this beauty. I I want to to somehow bathe in this beauty for for me to pass into it, for it to pass into me and for us to become part of the beauty. Rick Phillips says this in his commentary. The tragedy of mankind is not that we seek glory. Rather, the tragedy is that we swallow the false glory of sin, embrace the tainted glory of the flesh, and revel in the vain glory of the praise of men. The glory of the gospel is that Jesus came to save us from the lesser glories. The things that that we would naturally as sinners go after that are lesser glories, Jesus came to save us from those and give us a glory, bring us into a glory that is ultimate and life-giving, namely His glory. So God knows it is best for these glory seekers who have been made in my image, it is best for them not to seek the lesser glories, but to seek my glory. And as we'll see in a minute, it is the prayer Jesus prays for his people. John 17, verse 24. We're just looking at one verse today, and Brother James will finish our series up next week. John 17, verse 24, Jesus prays this. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Let's pray, and then we'll take a look at this verse. Lord, I I come to you. And I thank you that you have, in your creation, put such wonder and glory and beauty. That we, you have created us as human beings to be able to look at that beauty and admire that beauty and, and be in awe of that beauty, but know that there's something, something else that's missing that needs to take place. There's something more glorious than even what we see in creation, and that is the Creator. And Lord, we simply don't understand the the weight of Your glory. But God, I pray that today we would be encouraged as we look at this text to know that one day we will. One day we will be where you are, Jesus, and we will see your glory. And it will be what we have always dreamed of. And be far better. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing I want to point out about this verse is that Jesus is making this prayer to the Father. He says, Father, I... Now, I'm reminding us of the obvious that Jesus is praying to the Father because I I just want us to, to think about it again. This is not a prayer made from a servant to a master, from an employee to a boss. This prayer is being made from the Son 
to the Father. This is a prayer from a son to the Father. The relationship between God the Father and God, God the Son is the greatest and most perfect communal relationship that has ever existed or will ever exist. The Son does not deny the Father. The Father does not deny the Son. So when Jesus prays to the Father, remember the Father will give him what he prays for. Next, it says, Father, I desire. Father, I desire. But when you see that word desire, do not think that this simply refers to something that Jesus is wishing for, that in some kind of best case scenario, with other options being possible, this might happen. This is not a, a desire like many of the desires we have where we desire something and it's possible that we might get what we desire, but it's also possible that we don't. That is not what this word here means. In fact, the word could literally be translated will. Father, I will. Now, when we speak about the will of God, the Bible uses it in two different ways. Okay, and I have both points that I'm going to put up on the screen here. But the first way that I want you to see the Bible uses the phrase God's will is what we call the perceptive or prescribed will of God. The perceptive or the prescribed will of God. This is when God commands or prohibits things in Scripture. God prescribes things for us, moral prescriptions. He gives us moral precepts, and he says, these are what you're supposed to obey. Example, do not murder. Do not murder is part of the prescribed or the perceptive will of God. It is given to human beings for human beings to follow. Are you with me there? That is one of the, the types and wills of God. The other way that we use the, the phrase will of God, the other way that God uses it in his word, is the kind of will that we call decreed or sovereign will of God. This refers to the commands, I mean, this refers to the ordained events that come to pass on the earth. This is God's plan on the earth. It is his decrees, it is his sovereign plan. Now, an example of this. The murder of Jesus by lawless Jews and Romans. That was the decreed sovereign plan of God. There is no question in Scripture it was God's plan for Jesus to be murdered by the Jews and the Romans. Okay? Peter makes that very clear in the book of Acts. Of course, there are times, I just gave you two examples, there are times in which God's sovereign decree or God's plan allows for the breaking of the prescribed will of God. Take the murder of Jesus. Did God prescribe in His will, do not murder? Is that not what God said? Do not murder. Did God sovereignly will that Jesus should be murdered? Yes. Now, we got to wrestle with that tension. And it's not always easy for us. We struggle. We're like, how could God in His plan allow this sin to happen? 
and we struggle with it and we wrestle with it, especially in our own lives, right? When something happens to us that we consider wrong or unjust or unfair, at the same time that we say that is wrong, we also are saying, but God's in charge and God has a plan and God is sovereign over this thing that's happening to me. Even though what is happening to me is wrong. And, and when you struggle with that personally, always look to Jesus. Here's why. Always look to the cross. Because at the cross, we have this truth. Jesus said, do, God said, do not murder. But then sovereignly planned for His Son to be murdered. And we... We, may, we will wrestle with that in our lives personally, but just know all of that is working together for the Christian's good. Okay? It's never for our destruction. It is always for our good. And so you may not be able to personally take your finger and put it on an instance in your life and say, this is why God sovereignly allowed this sin to happen to me. But the truth is, He has a sovereign plan for it in your life whether you can see it or not. And if the greatest sin in human history was a part of God's plan, then all lesser sins are a part of His plan too. If they weren't, He wouldn't allow them. He would have stopped them. By the way, we have times in Scripture where God stopped it. You remember a time when Abraham and Sarah were traveling and they come to this place where... They come to this land that is not theirs and there's a king that is there and Abraham gets filled with fear because he thinks, here's what's going to happen. This king's going to kill me and take my wife. So let's tell the king that you're my sister. So the king now thinks, well, she's, she's free to take. She's not married. So the king's desire and his plan was to take Sarah as one of his wives and to sleep with her that night to consummate that relationship. And God shows it to him in a dream and says, I ain't letting you do that. I'm not going to allow that to happen. Why? Because in that case, that sin did not fulfill the sovereign plan of God. And God stopped it. Other times, he lets it happen. Now, my question to us this morning is what kind of will are we talking about here? When Jesus says, Father... I will. What kind of will is he talking about? Is he talking about the prescribed, perceptive will where he gives out moral guidelines for us? No. He's talking about his sovereign will. He's talking about what, he, what his sovereign decree and plan is. So when Jesus says, Father, I will, he is sovereignly declaring this is what he wills. So everything that we're going to read after that, there is no chance it's not going to happen. It is going to happen. Jesus wills it. When Jesus wills something in this sovereign decree, it is going to happen. So, and, and, and by the way, remember, Jesus is going to align his will with God's will. So guess what? God the Father and God the Son have the same will here. It's not like Jesus has a sovereign will and God the Father has a sovereign will and they got to get together and sort it out. They're perfectly aligned. So when, when Jesus says, Father, I will, He is about to declare something that He wills that the Father is in perfect agreement with. It's very important. 
So this means Jesus sovereignly wills that those He saves will be with Him where He is and they will see His glory. Now I'm going to say that again because if, 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 if there's not something in you that just wanted to amen right there and you just kept it in for some reason, <laughs> let me say this again. God the Father and God the Son in perfect harmony sovereignly wills that those that Jesus saves will be with Him and will see His glory. I mean, church. What is more powerful than that? And those that Jesus has been sent to save are those who have been given to Him by the Father. He says it again. This is back in verse 6 and 8. We dealt with the whole uh, idea of what this means. This includes the elect of God, both the original followers and those who would believe because of their testimony. These are people that are a love gift from the Father to the Son. All that the Father gives me, I will that they will be with me and see my glory. And the Father amens that will because He agrees with it perfectly. These are people that Jesus has come to save and He will not lose any of that which the Father has given Him. I'm going to read it again. John 6, 37-39 All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So this is the will that is being expressed here. The sovereign will of God is for the followers of Jesus to be with Jesus and to see his glory. So let's talk about this twofold will here. First, he says that they may be where I am. That they may be where I am. Now, Jesus is not talking about the room that he is praying this in. He is not talking about his current location in Jerusalem. Now you would think, because it says, where I am. That seems like present tense, like where I am right now. But that wouldn't make any sense because they're with him when he's praying this. Right? So part of those that the Father had given him are with him right now in Jerusalem, right outside of Jerusalem, in the, the, the upper room, and Jesus is teaching this in these texts that followed the upper room encounter. So that doesn't make any sense. Jesus is praying this prayer in the shadow of the cross, the resurrection, and his ascension. He is thinking about a time after his resurrection and after his departure to the throne of God. He is thinking about the events that will save his followers, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the present heaven. So, so Jesus is talking not about where he is at this moment. He is already thinking about the events that are going to happen the next few days as if they have already happened. He, he, we could basically say, Lord, I want them to be with me where I'm going to be. After the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, I want them to be with me where I'm going to be. And do not get focused on the place primarily 
Because it is not the present heaven that makes heaven so wonderful. It's not the ancillary things. What makes heaven so wonderful is Jesus is there. Whether it is the present heaven or whether it is the new earth, it's not going to be, the new earth will not be wonderful because the earth is simply new. It will be wonderful because Jesus will be there with us. So don't get hung up on is that going to be in the present heaven? Is that going to be on the new earth? There are people that get hung up on this in this text. Just know this. After Jesus ascends to the throne of God, He will always be at the throne of God. And one day when we die, we will go be with the throne of God or He will come back and the throne of God becomes here on the new earth and we will be with Him here. So the key is being with Him. If people come get saved because they don't want to go to hell, and that's the only reason they come, they did not get saved. I can scare anybody, anybody out of coming down front and praying a prayer. Right? I could manipulate you. You think, I would not be manipulated. You know how many people get manipulated to come down the front of, uh, of churches and pray a prayer and sign a card and think they're saved and they're just done with it? You can be manipulated into being so scared of hell that you'll, I'll, I'll, sure, if i got to take Jesus, I'll take Jesus so I don't have to go to hell. That ain't the way, that ain't the way salvation works. What makes salvation salvation is we realize we need Jesus. We need, we need His life to be our life. That's what we need. So the glory that, our, the, the, the being with Him is the, the wonderful thing about this. As human beings, we know what it's like to long to be with our people. To be with the people that love us and to be with the people that we love. Isn't there just something so comforting about that? Isn't there something so comfortable about being with people that you know love you and that you love? Every human being knows what that's like. Well, so does Jesus. This is his attitude. He longs to be with his people. Matthew Henry says it like this. Talking about the heart, he says, Christ speaks here as if he did not count his own happiness complete unless... His elect share with him in it. Jesus wants us to be with him. It's not simply that he's going to put up with you for all of eternity. He wants you there. Think about that. Jesus wants you to be with him. So often I think that God's just putting up, we think that God's just putting up with us. You know, I'll, I'll deal with those people at Calvary Hill if I have to. I made a promise after all. Right? That we somehow separate what God desires from what brings Him joy. From what, what He wills. What the, we, we separate that from what He enjoys and what brings Him happiness. No, Jesus here is not praying this like, okay, well, you know, if they got to be with me, I, I hope they'll be, I guess. He wants us to be with Him. He is going to find joy and happiness in being with us forever. 
That's why we come boldly before the throne of grace and throw ourselves down at His feet because we know that He's always going to welcome us. He's always going to love us. It brings Him joy to do it. He's looking forward to the completion of this desire. He's looking forward to this sovereign will coming to pass. He says uh, that He is going to eat and drink with us at His table in His kingdom. Luke 22-30. He says again in John 14-3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to Myself, that where I am you may be also. So Jesus sovereignly wills that we're going to be with Him. And He wants it. The other thing that Jesus sovereignly wills is that for His people, not only to be with Him, but He says to see My glory. The glory that Jesus says is based on the love of the Father to the Son before the foundation of the world. Before creation ever existed, there was a loving relationship between the Trinity. Did you know that? Let me ask you a question. If God is eternal and God is love, then guess what love is? It's eternal. But there was no human beings there for God to love. So who was He loving? He's loving the Godhead. The Father has eternally loved the Son. And Jesus is saying, the glory that I am going to have is based on the Father's love for me. Now again, we can try to imagine, but all I can say is this. What kind of glory are we talking about, Jesus having, if that glory is based on the Father's love for the Son? I mean, we, I know our minds can only go so far. But what, we must be talking about a glory that, that only God has because it's based on God's love for God. And Jesus says, I want my people to see it. I want them to see it. The disciples had seen the glory of Jesus in part when he walked and talked with them on the earth. The first witnesses could rightly say that they had seen Jesus' glory in His signs and wonders, in His sacrificial life, in His teaching. John 1 verse 14 says, And we have seen His glory, glory full of grace and truth. I think primarily what that kind of glory is, is the glory of God humbling Himself. We've seen the glory of Jesus in His humble Servant nature. So it can be rightly said that they saw His glory. It can be rightly said that we have seen His glory by faith. Well, I've read 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6 multiple times in this series, right? And the God who said, let there be light, has, has shown in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So there is a sense in which we can say, by faith, we have seen the glory of Jesus. But both the first witnesses and those that followed have seen the glory of Jesus through a glass dimly. But the glory that we're talking about here, this glory that Jesus is referring to here, 
is referring to His exalted grandeur. When His humble humble servanthood is replaced with power, beauty, might, and authority. Do you understand? We're not talking about seeing the glory of Jesus in His humble servant state. The way that the disciples got to watch and be with Him for three years. We're talking about the grandeur, the power, the beauty, the glory of Jesus unmitigated. Now, here's what's interesting. Peter, James, and John got a foretaste of this. Do you remember where they got a taste of it? The Mount of Transfiguration. You remember when Peter, James, and John got to go up the hill with Jesus? And they go up on this mountain and Jesus is there. And as as they are there, all of a sudden, Jesus transforms. And and he, he looks perfectly white and he is shining. And for some reason... Moses and Elijah get to show up and have a conversation with Jesus. But Peter, James, and John got to observe that. They got to watch that happen. Peter actually writes about it in 2 Peter 1.16-18. Here's what he says. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory that said, This is my beloved Son in whom whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. So they got to see it. A taste of this glory, we got to see it. Peter says. He's echoing what Jesus is saying in verse 24. We were with him and we were eyewitnesses to his glory. There's coming a day where we're going to be with him. We're going to be eyewitnesses to his glory. A day that will last forever. John is given a glimpse of this in Revelation chapter 1. Do you remember what happens in Revelation chapter 1 when John's in the Isle of Patmos and Jesus shows up? Does Jesus show up in chapter 1 of Revelation as a humble servant? No. He shows up in his glory. And what does John do when he sees Jesus? He falls on his face as if dead. So he, he didn't do that when Jesus was walking around in his servanthood, right? But when he, see, when he saw Jesus in his glory, and he was still in this flesh, unglorified body of his, he fell down on the ground as if dead. But none of these experiences, as wonderful as the Mount of Transfiguration was, and as wonderful as what John saw on the island of Patmos, none of these experiences are equivalent to what Jesus is saying in this text. What is going to come in for us is the unmediated glory of Jesus. No veil, no shadow, no distortion, the direct sight of the infinite glory of God. You're going to see it, church. You're going to see it with your own eyes. This is what Jesus wants and desires. And when we see this glory, two things are going to happen. Two things are going to happen. One, we will be filled with what is that present inexpressible joy. 
When we see the glory of Jesus with no veil, no shadow, no distortion, when we view the glory of Jesus unmediated, we are going to be filled with a joy that right now we cannot express. Think of the most joyful moment of your life, and it is a drop in the bucket. I'll say it this way. It is a drop in the ocean of the joy you will have when you see Jesus face to face. I think about the times in my life where I am overcome by joy, and it is nothing compared to what we are going to experience when we see Jesus face to face. Psalm 1611, in his presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. We can't even fathom what this is going to be like. It will make the beauty of the snow-filled Rockies look as if they are of no glory at all. In fact, in the book of Revelation, when the Bible says there will be no sun, I don't think that, he, that it is literally saying there will be no sun in the heavens. I think the point is the glory of Jesus will be so great, it'll make the sun look like it's not even there. Right now, you can't even stare at the sun. It'll burn your eyes. There's coming a day we're going to look directly at Jesus and it's going to be so glorious, it's as if the sun isn't even shining. What kind of glory must this be? And of course, when, we, when you get overwhelmed with joy, guess what you do? You begin praising. And that's going to happen as in Revelation 5, 9, 9 through 13. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice. Now all of creation, by the way, is now doing this. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. When you see the glory of God in all of its fullness, you are going to be filled with the joy that we as right now cannot express and it will automatically cause us to praise. Secondly, now there's a bunch more than two. I'm just giving us two, okay? It's not like there's only two things that will happen when we see the glory of Jesus. I'm just giving us two. One, we're going to be filled with this joy, but then we will be united with his glory. Now, church, this is what C.S. Lewis was quoting. This is what he was saying. He was saying, listen, it's not good enough for us just to see beauty and glory. That's not good enough. Even now when we see beauty, it's not good enough. We, we see it and then it's gone and we, we lose the feeling that we had. It's almost like there, there's something in us that says, man, I want to become a part of this beauty and this glory that I'm seeing. How do I get more into that? When we see Jesus in all of his glory, we will pass into that glory. We will receive that glory into ourselves. We will bathe in it and we will become part of it. Church, I can't even fathom what that must be. What will it be to bathe in, to take it into ourselves, to pass into it, to become part of the glory of Jesus? What will that even mean for us? Well, I know in part the, the, the Bible says we're going to shine like stars in the universe. 
Well, the way that we're going to shine like stars is because we're going to have the glory of God on us. It won't be our own glory. We're not going to be shining because we are glorious in and of ourselves. We're going to be glorious because the glory of Jesus is bathing us. You, you ever wonder why, why, and I don't know exactly, yeah, never mind. <laughs> don't have time, never mind. Let me just give you a few scriptures here. 1 John 3, 2. When he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. What happens when we see him as he is? We become like him. Why? Because he takes us into that glory. He brings us into that beauty. We become part of it. Philippians 3, 20 through 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So think about this. The power that Jesus has to subject all things under His feet in the entire created order will be the same power that he uses to transform our body to be like his glorious body. How do, how do we get this glorious body? His glory is given to us. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain, you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is not that we are simply going to see it with resurrected eyeballs. Even that would be glorious enough. But that is not all that will happen. We're going to be taken into this glory. And in some way, it's going to become part of us. We're going to bathe in it. We're going to pass into it. We cannot at present comprehend this. But in some way, we're going to be united with the glory of Jesus. We're going to be united with the glory of Jesus. The glory that made John fall on his face as if dead is somehow going to become part of us where we won't have to fall on our faces as if dead. If David Cohn had killed me on that day, <laughs> if he had, in the name of Jesus, pushed me to my death, that death would be nothing more than a gateway to glory. For that is what death is to the follower of Christ. It is a gateway to glory. Jesus one day is going to eliminate death altogether. Amen? It will be thrown into the lake of fire. Hades and death are going to be thrown in the lake of fire. There will be no more death. But because of His work on the cross, because death has already been defeated, it hasn't been done away with yet, but it has already been defeated. Amen, church? Because it has already been defeated, when a follower of Jesus dies, death doesn't win anything. In fact, it becomes a gateway for us 
to enter into glory. Not just some generic glory of the present heaven. I think sometimes that's how we use it, right? They've, they've gone on to glory. And we, we just mean they've gone on to some glorious place. Oh, no, 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 no. We've gone on into the glory of Jesus. We've gone on to be with Him and to see Him. It's why we have been saved. A gateway. That's what death is. Of being with Jesus and seeing His glory. A gateway into the glory of Jesus. To receive it into ourselves. To bathe in it. To become part of it. A gateway to the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And as a human being who seeks glory, there is only one place to find it, church. The only place that we can find glory that ultimately fulfills us is not in the lesser glories of this world. It is only in the glory of Jesus Christ. And if you are in this room or you are at home watching this right now or you watch it later on YouTube or or some other video feed or you listen to a podcast and you hear it, the truth is if you have not come to Jesus, you are seeking lesser glories and you will never be satisfied will never happen it may make you feel good for a moment and for a little bit but that glory passes and it fades there is only one glory that will never fade and it is the glory of Jesus Christ and when we stop chasing the lesser glories and we realize the 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 faultiness of that and we say you know what I'm done with all of that I want the great glory of Jesus I want Jesus and we repent chasing after that other stuff and we turn in faith to Jesus Christ we are promised that all of this prayer that Jesus prayed now applies to you I pray for that one that that one will be with me where I am and they will see my glory and all that that means Mm -hmm.